0: Good evening and welcome again to Macintosh and Maud Haven't Seen What? This week we discuss love and life through the romance of a suicide-obsessed 17-year-old and a carjacking eccentric septuagenarian. It's Harold and Maud! Hey everybody and welcome to Season 2 of Macintosh and Maud. And kicking off season two, we are focusing on romance and musicals with our Love is in the Air series.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: We're a little late on Valentine's Day, but...
1: We were busy with Oscars.
0: Let's call it Spring Romance. (laughs) But this is a decidedly not spring movie, as this week we watched Harold and Maude from 1971. Young, rich, and obsessed with death. Harold finds himself changed forever when he meets lively, septuagenarian Maud at a funeral. Yep. You got some, some initial thoughts you want to throw out there?
1: Um, it was okay.
0: Do you not know how to feel about this movie?
1: Uh, there's some things that really bug me about the movie. Okay. And I think a big one is that this feels like a crappy version of The Graduate.
0: Hmm. Okay.
1: Because there's a lot of similar things.
0: There's some similarities and some very big differences. Of course,
1: of course, but I feel like they were like, oh, let's do a funnier but also more morbid version of that. Mm,
0: I don't see it quite the same way. Okay. First of all, I wanted to take a little detour on some romance things. Okay. What do you look for in a romance movie? Um,
1: usually I usually want it to be a little bit funny and unexpected.
0: Well, I think we hit that out of the park with this movie
1: mm-hmm. um i also I do kind of enjoy the opposites attract thing, even though you can see it from a mile away. I like it when you just see two people like bickering and then they just start making out. I find that hilarious
0: <laughs> that's fun, yeah. what's the most annoying trope you deal with in romance movies?
1: Oh, wow, that's a good question. There are many. There are many tropes that I do not like in romance films. What's
0: the one that just literally makes you want to launch something at the movie theater screen?
1: I really hate it when it all hinges on the guy when it's when it's a, a heterosexual uh, relationship when it's all hinges on the guy growing up and completely changing who he is to please this lady. I kind of I I I'm sick of those stories in general, and I just I don't I don't care. It's kind of like okay, if he really has to do that much, y'all shouldn't be together at all, <laughs> anyways.
0: Yeah, for me, on both of those counts, I think it's always realism when it's yeah. when it's super heightened. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can get down for just a dumb rom com. Yeah, totally. But if I'm really honest about what I want for a more romance, like mm-hmm. we saw "Call Me by Your Name" last year, yeah, that's what I'm looking for
1: in terms of a romance. And that's not even like that's not even like a. I would say that's more like a love affair than a romance.
0: Right. But I'm but but I'm okay with like even if it's that or it's a full on marriage between two uh people, if you're seeing the day to day reality of that, Mm -hmm. I always find that really more interesting to watch. Yeah. And the the complexity of that than to just watch the same these two people met and it's cute and then they have to overcome something to get together. Yay.
1: What would be your favorite like rom com?
0: Well, we're talking about one of them today. Okay,
1: but what are some of your others, just for context?
0: Um. Okay, I've got one. I've got okay. one that I definitely know I can put down. Okay, and that was Chocolate.
1: Oh, I don't even really consider that. So it came much out a rom-com, in the late nineties. No, I, I know what movie you're talking about. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, romances. Yeah. No, um. Fine. Also, one. Uh, that's one. Um. There's just something so different about it, mm-hmm. and unexpected in the twists. Um, I think this movie definitely fulfills that, and okay. one that we're going to watch later, for me, that's very, very um, intimate and interesting to me in a different way, okay. is In the Mood for Love. Okay. That's one of my favorites as well.
1: I I would say, I, I'm definitely seeing probably every rom-com known to man. Um, it's just what is expected of my gender. <laughs> uh, but... My favorites, I would have to say, my two favorites are The Wedding Singer.
0: Oh, that's a good one.
1: And French Kiss. Okay. French Kiss, I could watch any day. I can quote that movie. When people tell me they are happy, my ass begins to twitch. (laughs) Like, <laughs> it's genius, it's adorable Meg Ryan, like back when she was precious, and Kevin Klein playing a Frenchman, and a yucky one, too, and I love it, I love it so much.
0: And as annoying as it is, When Harry Met Sally is quite wonderful.
1: We watched that on our very first Valentine's Day together. We did. Because you had never seen it. I have
0: never seen it. It's a great movie. So see,
1: this whole trope of, this ho- of our podcast has gone back from the very beginning of our relationship. <laughs> Very beginning.
0: Oh, yeah. Let's talk about Harold and Maude for just one minute. Oh. Have you ever heard of this movie? Yes. Okay. Was it ever on your list to see at any point? Uh, On your radar?
1: Kinda. Like, I knew it was classic. I knew um, uh, about the music stuff. And I just wanted to be like, oh, this is a great movie. I think it may have been on TV once or twice. And I just kind of didn't get into it enough to actually sit down and watch it.
0: I feel like this is a movie you have to intentionally decide to watch.
1: Probably. If it pops
0: up on television, there's no way you can just get into it.
1: Yeah. And I think that's probably what happened. It, it I was just like, huh? I don't know what's going on. And yeah. Whatever. So I would have turned on something else. Yeah. But I haven't like actively avoided it. Well, you know. So, yeah.
0: All right. Well, then let's start this full on discussion with the writer Kay. Named Colin Higgins, wrote this as a student script for UCLA. Oh, okay. Uh, showed it to a producer's wife who he was working as a pool boy at their house. Hmm. She thought it was good enough. She got a meeting for him at Paramount and sold it. Wow. Uh, it was intended that he was going to direct the movie initially.
1: Oh, wow!
0: But they saw his screenshots and did not think he was talented enough yet. I
1: think that's fair.
0: It's one of those things where he was a student film director. Mm-hmm. Clearly, he had chops. Yeah. He was at UCLA Film School, which is known for the screenwriters. That's the Coppola wing of the new Hollywood stuff. Yeah. So he clearly had chops, but he wasn't ready. And then a few months later, they contacted Hal Ashby, who we'll talk about later, to direct the movie. Okay. Um, Hal did a wonderful thing. One, he made sure he had Higgins' blessing to do the movie. And then brought him on as a co-producer so that he could watch Ashby make the movie yeah. and learn on the set.
1: That's a really nice courtesy to give to a writer, particularly one that's Brand new, inex- inexperienced. Uh, we can definitely see where that has bit some directors in the ass. Oh, yeah. Uh, look at the entire Fifty Shades of Grey franchise. <laughs> uh, they gave that woman way too much power. Yeah. But no, I think that's a... That's a respectful thing to do, especially if you really like the source material. You need to have them have a voice in the production. So what did did our writer do after this?
0: Well, he wrote a novelized version of it and a play, which didn't take off very much. And then he went on to write Foul Play, Chevy Chase's first big post-Saturday Night Live vehicle. Never seen it. Nine to five. Oh. And The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Oh. And he directed all three of those.
1: Oh, wow.
0: So he had a nice little run in the late 70s and early 80s. He also wrote Silver Streak uh, with Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder. Oh, okay. What did you think about the script? It's good. I really like the script a lot.
1: So I kind of like that he's constantly pretending to commit suicide. Yes. It's funny. I just feel like... There's too long in between those. And it should have been more of a series of, oh, here's this girl I want you to meet. He commits suicide. Then the next day, it's like It's it should have been a little bit more closer together. They took too much time in between some of those.
0: So what's interesting to read about some of the trivia is the novel flushes some things out much more deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole scene that was filmed. A, a lot got left on the cutting room floor for this movie. Okay. Um, it'd be really interesting to see like a full director's cut if Ashby probably ever wanted to do anything like that, which from what I can tell, as weird as he was, never would have done. Yeah. But there's a whole scene where Harold's mom is talking to one of his mannequins oh. <laughs> because she doesn't realize it's not him. <laughs> That's funny. So, um, there's whole bits and stuff mm-hmm. like that that pop up. I think that that may be an issue of the director. And how things got cut Mm -hmm. versus how the script was.
1: Yeah. See, I'm not really sure if that was the writing or the director, but that's kind of one of those things where I feel like that should be a little bit tighter. Um, I like Maude. I like how she's written.
0: I love, love. I mean, the L-I-V-E line is one of the top 100 quotes in the AFI list. Mm -hmm. L-I-V-E live. Otherwise, what are you going to have to talk about in the locker room? Yep. There's just so many lines that she has that I'm like, you could build your entire life around that mantra. Thank you, Maud. Yep. It's quite wonderful. Mm-hmm. And she's she sees the day without feeling super overwritten, you know?
1: Yeah. And I like that they didn't give her like, oh, she's dying of cancer. So that's how she's like this. No, this is just how she is.
0: She's just a, a she's just... an eccentric lady. Yep. Now, there is one moment, and I don't know if you caught it, mm-hmm. Um. When they're sitting out um, on the beach or on the pier or whatever, and mm-hmm. and she talks about Dreyfus and the seagulls. Dreyfus was a Frenchman and, and um, was kicked out of the French army, most people believe, because he was Jewish. Mm-hmm. And that was a key sign of anti-Semitism in France. Okay. And it ties into the fact, and I, I didn't catch this, but it's apparently there, Harold sees on her arm that there is a tattoo from the concentration camps. Oh, okay. It is highly suggested and fleshed out more in the novel that Maud is a survivor of the camps. Okay. Which
1: that else that does explain.
0: It explains a lot. It for explains her.
1: a lot of her. David indeed. Yeah. Um. I also, but also not knowing any of that, I don't care.
0: Yeah. Well, and the hints with the you know, I I I saw the princess in Vienna and things like that. Oh, okay. Well, um, that makes some sense. When we talk about some casting that may that even fleshes out further when they were who they were considering mm-hmm. to cast in the role let's talk about the director hal ashby mm-hmm. now hal ashby is low key one of my secret favorite directors okay um he this was the first Production, I feel like, where he got, like, solid control. His run through the 70s is some iconic 70s films, Mm -hmm. but they're low-key. They're under the radar. Such as? After this, he did The Last Detail with Jack Nicholson and Randy Quaid Mm -hmm. in his first film role. Okay. Shampoo with Warren Beatty. Okay. Bound for Glory, the Woody Guthrie movie with, I think, David Carradine. Coming Home, uh, what is widely considered one of the best Vietnam vet movies. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, I know that Voigt. one. Uh-huh. And then the last one in this run is Being There with Peter Sellers. Oh, yeah. That whole yeah, run. it's nice little. And all very different movies yeah. in their own right. He doesn't do a single movie that I think is the same in any way, shape, or form. But there's always this little strain of him in all of them his style reminds me so much of wes anderson
1: oh yeah i can see that i can see that being an inspiration for wes anderson
0: and wes anderson and then some elements of pt anderson all of these newer auteur directors pt anderson's film style is Kubrick all day but his writing style especially in his relationship movies Mm -hmm. like magnolia or things like that this is very much a smirking style movie, and it wasn't written by Hal Ashby.
1: No, I, I, I understand what you mean, but
0: I sense that style there. Hmm. Um, and this is this feels like a Wes Anderson movie. It's if Wes made this movie, you would totally buy it, especially with See, all
1: the. You know what? I kept one of the things I kept thinking is like if I were to redo this today. Here's the things I would change. This is why I would tweak it. But you know what? Wes Anderson would be perfect to do this movie today.
0: The music and all the music scenes the, that intercut between them. The music feels very life aquatic. Yeah, exactly. Sa-
1: same artist the whole way through. You,
0: you maintain, yeah, yep. and Rushmore. Uh-huh. The the Rushmore theme, pa- themes and parallels it does are have a lot so
1: of huge. Yeah, you're right. You're very much right. Yeah, this is this is like an original Wes Anderson film. But no, I
0: mean, he did a good job. It's very uneven, but I feel like that's on purpose.
1: There's just some editing things I would fix. And like the, like the montages, I feel like I would have either added a little bit more or tightened them up. Like the opening sequence, I feel like they took way too long to get to that point. Um, to be like, oh, this guy, you know, he's clearly doing a ritual, like something's happening. And then it's like, oh, he's hanging himself. And you're just like, well, this could have taken half the time. It took too long. I feel like they should have taken more time with when his mom walked in.
0: Well, what's interesting is this is a moment in the 70s where they were drawing these things out. I know. And and letting those scenes play themselves out that way. And part of it, too, was he had picked a song and he was going for it. So yeah. they just put it through that whole sequence.
1: And I, see where they, I feel like where they should have taken more time was his mom walking in yeah. before she finds him. And that would have been where it was funny. exactly. And then, then it should have been a straight cut to him at his... his Uh, psychiatrist, being like, how many times have you done this? I can tell you. Can you guess? Like, 15? 15? Yeah, give or take. (laughs) Like, that would have been funnier, because you'd have been
0: like, oh, this is a thing. Except a reminder that the psychiatrist is completely monotone and in a Freudian fashion. Okay, so, with all that in mind, with the Wes Anderson connection and everything, Mm -hmm. would you watch another movie by this director? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Because I... This is one of those like mini director series that mm-hmm. I would love to go through, especially because I haven't seen half of them.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I know I recognize the name, and I'm just not familiar with a lot of
0: his work. I don't think many people are. He he was part of that whole crew with the mm-hmm. William Friedkins and the Martin Scorsese's and all them, but he he flew way under the radar mm-hmm. because he had a very specific point of view. No, I get that. And I think way ahead of his time. In the sense that that style would not become popular until the 90s and the 2000s. It really didn't. It was nostalgic before there was nostalgia for that period.
1: Um, I think it's a combination of factors. Like, he doesn't have like the cinematographer that Wes Anderson had. Like, he doesn't have that same art direction behind him.
0: Right. Well, and I think all of his movies are slightly different. Like, they're, they're, well, in the sense that Anderson has a very specific style. And I don't know that Ashby does. There's just something underneath that movie with the tones that he does in okay. everything he does that has that. Now we're going to jump into the cast. Okay. And in order to do that, we get to play our favorite game. Oh. Who would have been better? I'm oh. doing that for a theme song. I don't know why.
1: Okay. I'm okay with that.
0: So here's where I'm going to put you, okay? We're going to talk about the actor. Uh Uh-oh. You are the casting director. Crap. As the casting director, I'm going to give you... We're going to talk about the actor who played the role. Okay. Then we're going to talk about the possibilities. Okay. And then I'm going to give you the choice. Mm -hmm. Do you pick the actor, Mm -hmm. do you pick one of the others, or do you go off the grid entirely? Okay. We're going to start with Bud Court as Harold, who was a protege of Robert Altman at the time. Okay. But, uh... Really just became a character actor after this. I haven't yeah. seen him in a whole lot of other things. Though you... He
1: you, did a lot of television spots. Oh, yeah. A Instantly
0: lot. recognizable face. And
1: then I know he was in a really bad accident that he had to spend a lot of time having, like, his skull was fractured. He had to have a lot of plastic surgery. I didn't read about
0: that at all. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I,
1: I read about the actors. I didn't read too much about the the movie itself. Oh, that's true. So like, I, knew, I knew that because I was like, have I ever seen this guy before?
0: So, chances are you have.
1: Yeah, a lot. He did a lot of TV.
0: Okay, so there were four possibilities here. Okay. One was Richard Dreyfus. Okay. Who would go on a couple years later to, I believe, win or at least get nominated for an Oscar for Barefoot in the Park. The next opportunity here would have been Bob Balaban. At the time, he would have been about 25 or 26. Okay. But also had that youthful face. Yeah. And just two years earlier, he had a bit part in Midnight Cowboy.
1: Still never seen
0: that. Mm-hmm. We also have John Rubenstein, a very prominent Broadway theater actor, producer. Mm-hmm. You would probably know him as the Doctor from the series finale of Friends.
1: Interesting. Okay.
0: So a younger version of that dude.
1: Yeah, that's gonna be a no. The
0: the script was originally written by Colin Higgins with him in mind. Oh,
1: okay. Weird. So weird. never know. But okay.
0: And Ashby's original idea. hmm for the role and the music, after seeing a concert,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Elton John.
1: Oh well, I'm just gonna say this: Elton John could not play straight.
0: Mm, well, no. at, but but this was Elton John early on in his career. He still hadn't gotten nope. into the Benny and the Jets phase. It was nope. a very different thing. Nope. Not even with the whole country style nope. and
1: the Nope, Nope, Nope. Man nope. across the okay. Nope. Okay.
0: I assume you've already, you've already nixed Rubenstein, so now it's down to either Dreyfus, Balaban, or somebody off the grid.
1: I'm thinking off the grid.
0: Who would you get with?
1: I feel like a Davy Jones.
0: Wow. That would have been great.
1: Because I think Bud Court is decent. Uh Uh-huh. But I have a huge problem with his makeup. They made him up to look like a little doll boy. And it is distracting and bad. hmm It ruins a lot of his scenes.
0: No, I agree. I think they were going for corpse.
1: Pale. I I didn't like his haircut, but I understand that that was the the fashion of the time. Yeah. It really did not look good with his face was really my bigger problem. They could have done something that was still 70s, but looked better on the kid. Um, I, I understand There's like, there's this mature, immature thing.
0: Well, and over the course of the movie, it softens and softens until he's completely normal at the end. No, it
1: does. Towards the end, he's, his face is not as white. No. But it was done so badly that it was distracting to me.
0: Yeah, that's fair.
1: It was, it was poorly used. Um, but yeah, I feel like a Davy Jones would have had that look. But I think he would have been more playful because I feel like that's what's missing from Bud Court uh-huh. because that suicide is him fucking with his mother. Oh yeah, and he is being mischievous, but he's just being so morose about it. You know who else also would have done great because he does this a lot, Jason Schwartzman.
0: Well, yeah. that's
1: like his thing.
0: And yeah, if, if Schwartzman was around in seventy one, exactly, there's so much. Of his character in Rushmore, Mm -hmm. taken from Harold.
1: You could have also gone gone with somebody um, like a Ryan Reynolds, do someone who is completely against that type. But who can play funny really well.
0: Part of the problem is we didn't have that many actors like that in 1971. Well,
1: even today. I mean, we've talked about it before on this podcast. People don't know what to do with a a guy who's really hot and really good at being funny. Exactly. But I just kind of think of this character and this action. and be like, there's so much here. Now I kind of hope someone remakes this film.
0: No, I mean, Rush... Rushmore is almost the perfection yes. of this concept. Oh, I agree. Of the yeah, way Yeah, once too you said sp-
1: Wes Anderson, I'm like, yeah, I'm there. This, the way yeah. too smart for mm-hmm. his
0: own good kid. Yeah. So um, not,
1: but for this time period, I'm thinking Davy Jones. Okay. I think that would have been right.
0: Okay, now, Maud. Okay. I got to talk about Ruth Gordon. This woman has an amazing story.
1: Yes, I do know a little bit. I know she she got the Oscar for Rosemary's Baby.
0: She Yes, but... Even before that, she's born in 1894. Yep. She moves to New York in her 20s mm-hmm. to go pursue acting and winds up in a couple of silent films. Mm-hmm. She and her husband team up to write for Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn, getting nominated for an Oscar for Adam's Rib. Oh, wow. And they had a long career writing. And then in the 60s is when she restarts her acting career. And gets into Rosemary's Baby, Mm -hmm. and then has a long Mm -hmm. streak through until her death Mm -hmm. of acting roles. And this is one of them that came out after Rosemary's Baby. Yep. Now, she was nominated, along with Bud Court for a Golden Globe for this movie.
1: Oh, okay. Oh, Ruth Gordon was lovely. I enjoyed her.
0: Don't want to change anything about it?
1: I don't know who, from that time period, I would replace her with.
0: I worry that anybody else would have tried to overact. Perhaps. And Maud needed to be understated.
1: You just have to believe her the second you start talking to her. Exactly.
0: And I think
1: being, I mean, of course she was known at this time, but not being a bigger name is in her favor.
0: We also have to mention Vivian Pickles. Yes. As Mrs. Chasen. She was perfect. Delightfully horrible.
1: Yeah. She could have been written just a little bit better, but, you know, that's on her.
0: And, and... And, oh sorry
1: and funny enough okay we said pickles and i was like who has a name like pickles and i was like um christina pickles who played judy geller on friends monica and ross's mom and then come to find out she's related to vivian they're sisters
0: any of the other character actors like super stand out to you no i kind of like the priest i kind of like the psychiatrist but uh, they're they're very wooden
1: they they are and i think that's supposed to be the way it is, I kind of feel like that everyone else is supposed to be wooden because we're seeing it through his eyes. Uh-huh. Harold's like, This is how he sees the world, it's really boring and lame, and all these people are ridiculous. And then he meets Mob, and it's like, Oh, right, like she sees things too. She's seeing the same things, but she's seeing them differently.
0: She's seeing them in the sense of wanting to be alive. Yeah, agreed. It was very interesting. If you go read Roger Ebert's review of it, they talk about it on Wikipedia, where he says, you're left with the impression of all these people are so over-the-top boring and awful Mm -hmm. that it leaves no room to the imagination of how he might choose to go. I think what Ebert pointed out with this movie was, at the time... You need a little more nuance with all of these characters mm-hmm. to make this click a little bit better. I think Harold and Maud should both be in their own world, and everybody else could play a more deadpan straight role. Mm-hmm. But if you style it correctly, yeah. if you styled it the way Ashby had it, but had these people be kind of dead earnest, even with their ridiculous lines... Instead of stiff, mm-hmm. it might have played even better satirically.
1: See, I, now I, I want Wes Anderson to redo this. I know, I right? I want that. I it want would be that. so good. Um, I'm going to email him.
0: One other <laughs> One other acting note. Okay. The motorcycle cop. Mm-hmm. Credit as motorcycle cop. Okay. You might recognize as a very young Tom Skerritt, fresh off of M.A.S.H.
1: <gasps> that is Tom Skerritt.
0: Uh-huh. Shit.
1: Tom Scarrett.
0: His character was also known as M. Borman, a reference to the infamous Nazi Martin Bormann. Oh, lovely. Whose whereabouts were unknown after World War II. Mm. And in a discussion during the filming, the question was asked, and Tom Scarrett posited that Borman would have gone off to Oakland to become a traffic cop. <laughs> and so Ashby wrote it into the film. Yeah, all right. <laughs> uh, that dude's an interesting guy. Huh. Okay, we have to talk about one very very important part of this movie. Okay. And that's the music. Okay. Uh-oh.
1: hmm
0: You're not a fan?
1: Nope. Oh, no. I've never been a Cat Stevens fan.
0: Wow.
1: Ever. I think this is one of the few albums, and it wasn't Harold Amon, but Cat Stevens... My parents are not music people, but my mom had a lot of tapes, and I do remember there being a Cat Stevens tape. Oh, Like, it was Cat Stevens, Twilight Paris, and ABBA, and we listened to a lot of Twilight Paris.
0: A good amount of ABBA.
1: I liked ABBA, and I remember trying to listen to Cat Stevens and being like, I hate this. Oh, there
0: was a Carpenter's one, too, and I didn't like that either. I have horror stories about that. So I, I actually had to come around on Cat Stevens a lot. I think it was one of those staple radio things on the oldie station that you got yeah. bored with. Wes Anderson enough is the one who kind of pulled me around to it.
1: Of course.
0: Um, because he uses it in Rushmore
1: okay. um,
0: and uses some of those, some other songs of his. There Goes My Baby is a particularly great one. It's one of his really early songs. It's called almost a pop song, different mm-hmm. than this stuff. I love the soundtrack.
1: I. Right. Um do not and I am annoyed because he got to be you it's stuck in my head.
0: <laughs> uh, so most of the songs from the soundtrack came from two different albums that he'd already put out his debut, Mona Bone Jacone, and then <clears throat> his I'm sorry, what was that? Uh, that is what it is called, oh Mona Bone Jacone. It was the early 70s, so much weed. I don't know, and then his super classic album, T for the Tiller Man, which had a yeah. lot of very famous songs. Uh, but the two songs that he wrote specifically for the film, one is done at the very beginning of the movie that song is Don't Be Shy
1: Don't be shy Just let your feelings roll on by Don't wear fear Nobody will know you're there. Just lift your head and let I you have a
0: particular soft spot in my heart for this one.
1: Okay.
0: not just because of the song, but because it's a staple of Pearl Jam's live shows.
1: Okay And Eddie
0: Vedder does a really great cover of it.
1: David loves
0: Pearl Jam. I do. But I also like the lyrics of these songs a lot. I know it's really simple, but they're all about doing what you feel in your heart and not being afraid of it. And all of them are really simple in that way. I feel like if you just sit with them for a little bit and just let them wash over you, they're very calming and nice. (laughs) They're they're therapeutic. Yeah. I love them. The other song, which will be stuck in your head forever and will be stuck in y'all's heads forever is if you want to sing out sing out well if you want to
1: sing out sing out and if you want to be free be free because there's a million things to be you know that there are and if you want to live high live high Okay, yeah, that's the song that's stuck in my head. Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't know the names of anything. It's a fine song. It's just annoying. Like, it makes sense for the characters. It's so and, perfect and, for the and movie. I'm, I'm fine with that. And I actually... But it's annoying.
0: I will also say I almost like Ruth Gordon's version on the piano better.
1: It's less formal. And the...
0: Pl- and the... F- it's so great that she's playing it Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden she gets up and dances and you realize it's a player piano piano piano. and it's (laughs) so brilliant. It's It's just a great little move.
1: Um, And I like that. That's what he starts playing at the end. when He starts walking off. Like he's so upset, but he's going to be fine.
0: Can we talk about that last sequence, which I think is amazing. There's no words. It's all done with the song and you just see him dealing with her, driving the car up the mountain and cutting back and forth between him and the hospital
1: yeah, and then he crashes his car, and we think he's in it, but then we realize that he's not in the car, and he has saved his banjo, and he walks off, and he starts dancing. Right. Which is like, the dancing was a
0: bit much. It's a little kitschy. Yeah. To me, this movie, this is one of those movies, it really is, where this is a favorite movie of mine, mm-hmm. while I recognize it's not the best movie I've ever seen. That's okay. It's got some problems mm-hmm. in terms of execution, but it, it has this soft spot in my heart of like, I still kind of love it. Okay. So for this Love is in the Air series, mm-hmm. rather than stars, how many roses would we give this movie?
1: This is the cheesiest thing that's ever come out of your mouth.
0: Okay, well, you know.
1: Okay. Well, it's your movie. You have to, you have to give roses first. I know. I, have to, start I have, to start have to start with roses.
0: I know it's not the greatest movie in the world. I know that it's got lots of issues, and that's why I don't give it a perfect score, but I'm giving it a four out of five. <sighs>
1: I just think I just held up four fingers because I knew that's what he was going to do.
0: <laughs> I just, the whole time I'm watching this movie, I'm like, I, I remember when I watched it mm-hmm. the first time. I loved it. Mm-hmm. A lot of times on the first watch of a movie, I don't really... I get washed up in it. Yeah. In a lot of ways, I just sort of feel it. Yeah. And then the second time around, I really catch more of the stuff in it. Of course. It didn't fade for me at all. Okay. And that feeling came back over me the more I watched the movie. The more one-liners from Maud and the more scenes they had... When when Harold breaks down crying because mm-hmm. he finally admits why he keeps doing this, mm-hmm. all of it just was like, yeah, I love this. I love what it has to say about things and its outlook. And so I can I couldn't not go for that four out of five.
1: Okay. What I'm, about you? I'm going to go with three.
0: That's better than it could have been.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I like, I like the story. There's some things I would tighten up. There's things I would change, but uh, it's, it's a good movie. So I'm going to give it a three. All right didn't like totally shit on it so well good
0: we started off with uh not the worst rating in the world
1: yeah there you go
0: so what's next week
1: next week it's my movie and it is my favorite musical Directed by my one of my favorite people, it's Hello Dolly, ah. starring Barbara Streisand and Walter Matthau. I'm so excited!
0: You know, I've never seen like half the movie musicals I should have, and you're throwing a late period one.
1: Well, you've you've heard a lot of the music because I have played the soundtrack a lot, and I'm not allowed to play it at work because then I start dancing at my desk. <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing. It's
0: you know, happened, you know me in musicals.
1: Yeah, you're very anti-musicals but you really did enjoy singing in the rain and i think you'll get caught up in some of the ridiculousness that is hello dolly
0: i'm sure i will
1: i would kill to see bernadette peters on broadway right now in it mm. she would be um, i I, just, I would die well, it would be
0: awesome it's bernadette peters of course It. Would i be would awesome. see her
1: in anything but, <laughs> <laughs> but dolly levi come on <laughs> so well all right until next time guys Hey guys, we did a double feature this weekend at the movies, and we're going to start with Tomb Raider.
0: Lara Croft, the fiercely independent daughter of a missing adventurer, must push herself beyond her limits when she finds herself on the island where her father disappeared.
1: Yeah, we've got Alicia Vikander, Dominic West, Walton Goggins, Kristen Scott Thomas.
0: Derek Jacobi.
1: Yeah, we've got some cool people.
0: This was a movie. A In- slightly better than average movie.
1: Okay, it's definitely better than the other Tomb Raider films.
0: That's true. By a lot. The first Tomb Raider film was fun and campy.
1: It was very campy. This movie is not campy. No. It is... Okay, if you take any one of those rock action films, this is the same thing. It's just with a female character. Well,
0: the thing about the rock movie, I, it's a little apples and oranges to me, only because the rock movies are kind of more comedies, and this is has moments of levity, but really is an action thriller.
1: But... This is in the same vein. It's a action film. It's just a popcorn action film with the female protagonist.
0: So much so that we got a second bowl of popcorn.
1: Yeah, we did. <laughs> we did
0: because it was worth the popcorn. It shoving. Was.
1: But I, I really liked Alicia Vikander
0: as as Laura Croft. She brings a a, a different spin than Angelina Jolie had. Angelina Jolie was playing. The, sort of.
1: She was just the the physical embodiment of the video game character, exactly. And you know, Laura Croft has gone through a little bit of a physical change over the years, and they've made her a little bit more realistic. You know, I really like that we have this woman running through the jungle, and she's appropriately dressed, because <laughs> <laughs> that's not always the case. Uh, and you know, and she's badass, and she's got a really cool villain in Walton Goggins, who I adore.
0: I love the way he played that villain, too, where he is a little off-kilter, but it really just boils down to, I just want to get off this fucking island, man. I'm here to do a job. That's it. That's it.
1: And uh, Dominic West is great. Uh, Ah,
0: McNulty. McNulty.
1: Uh, He's great. Uh, He plays her dad. And it's just, it's a a fun movie. It's light. It's cool.
0: Yeah. It's, everybody does their job well. Everybody puts out a movie that was meant to be put out. Mm Mm-hmm. Nothing special, no frills.
1: Yep. And Daniel Wu, uh, he plays a a sailor. Uh, He kind of helps Laura on her quest. He's cool. I liked him. He's very cute. I got a lot of uh, Pablo Pascal uh, feeling from him. Like, I'm attractive. (laughs) (laughs) Like, he's good. I I hope to see more of him.
0: He's got the goods to be an action dude. Yeah. So then we jump into our second feature of the night, The much-anticipated on Macintosh and Mod Thoroughbreds. Mm -hmm. Two upper-class teenage girls in suburban Connecticut rekindle their unlikely friendship after years of growing apart. Together, they hatch a plan to solve both of their problems, no matter what the cost. That's not a good description for this movie. No,
1: our favorite description was one of the critics. This is American Psycho meets Heathers.
0: That is David Ehrlich from IndieWire. That's...
1: The perfect description of this film, and if you like, okay, we've we've reviewed Heather's on this film. Yes, and there's some really interesting things about Heather's, but it's kind of a shitty movie, and it has not held up well. It's it's campy and culty at this point.
0: At the time it came out, it had a lot to say. It doesn't anymore.
1: This takes that idea and modernizes it and puts a lot more intellectual thought into it. Uh, It's much more sophisticated. I know I'm gonna think about this movie for a while. I know that. Um, but I really love you know, the trailer is a perfect trailer for this film. Like I mean, perfect. You've got one character, she feels nothing, you have another character who feels too much. Uh-huh. And then they have this problem. And it's great. And I'm sure a lot of you are like, Well, what does thoroughbred mean? Well, thoroughbred is a type of horse. And they talk about it and it's very important to the plot. Yeah. So I don't want to spoil any of that. No. Um, this is Anton Yelton's Last film before he died.
0: Very nuanced, very subtle performance. Showed probably a direction he was headed as an actor for sure.
1: Uh, I mean, I loved Anton. He's amazing. Yeah, I've loved him since he was an alpha dog. Yeah, he was the kid, an alpha dog. I loved, that movie was so underrated, but
0: amazing. Star Trek.
1: He was great in Star Trek because he, he didn't do Scotty. In um, he 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 didn't um. Chekhov. Chekhov. Sorry, sorry. I get them confused. It's the accent dudes.
0: Pavel Chekhov.
1: Yeah. Uh, he didn't uh, make him a caricature. No, he made was, him a Russian kid. Which was great. Yeah, it's Simon Pegg kind of made that guy. He made Scotty a little bit of a caricature, but that's okay.
0: <laughs> He's supposed to be.
1: I, exactly. That character lends it that way. but.
0: And then, uh, can, we, can we not give a shout out to Paul Sparks? I love
1: Paul Sparks.
0: I He's so good at being an evil fucking him. dude.
1: He is so versatile because I sometimes forget who he is. He played... Uh, the guy with the weird voice on, <laughs> yeah, that dude on Broad, uh, Bro- Boardwalk Empire. Boardwalk Empire. Then he plays Thomas Yates on House of Cards. Then he's um he plays Billy Graham in The Crown. He's and the
0: bad guy on The Night of.
1: He's he's a bad guy on The Night of. Yeah, true. That's that's a very vague film or series, but he's I I'm always happy when I see him,
0: and he just. He's just still perfectly simple, evil motherfucker in this movie. Love
1: it. He, I I want to see him do some comedy, but he was great in this film. He was perfect. Very restrained.
0: Oh, yeah. Everybody's really restrained, which this movie needed. True. If this went over-the-top campy, Mm-mm. it wouldn't have worked as well as it did. But because of how they went with it, it's so... It's hard to watch, and mm-hmm. hard, and you have a lot
1: of feelings after.
0: Yep. Worth it. Worth the time.
1: D- yeah. Definitely go see this one.
0: Also, almost sold out. Like for every showing we're seeing,
1: yeah, it was almost completely sold out. Like we were going to go to a four o'clock and it was sold out, so we went to the eight thirty, and we're just like,
0: okay. So maybe you know it's the Alamo thing, but like yo, the the people are going to see this one.
1: It's good. It's worth it. All right. Until next time. Bye.